Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. On February 18th, seven members of parliament resigned from the Labor Party. Two more followed just days later. Several of them cited institutional anti-Semitism in the party as the reason for their departure. This should be shocking. But it's also hard to be too surprised, as we've heard a great deal about rising anti-Semitism in labor since Jeremy Corbyn became party leader in 2015. Joining us now to talk about these developments is Ella Rose, former national director of the Jewish labor movement. Ella, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, we have listeners all over the world, but the majority of them are based here in the U.S., of course. So for those who aren't aware, what does the Jewish labor movement do? So the Jewish labor movement was founded in 1903 as the UK branch of Paulette Zion, or the Workers of Zion, which is a very common European movement at the time. It affiliated to the Labour Party in 1920, happened to change its name in 2004, and it's the Jewish affiliate of the Labour Party. So the British Labour Party has a number of affiliates from anything like LGBT Labour or a trade union, and Jewish Labour movement has been one of those since 1920. In kind of an interesting coincidence, it was almost exactly one year ago on our March 22nd, 2018 episode that we had Labor Member of Parliament John Mann join us on AJC Passport to talk about anti-Semitism in the Labor Party. Before I ask you about last month's departure of several members of Parliament from the Labor Party, can you bring us up to speed? What has happened in the intervening year in labor around anti-Semitism? Oh, what hasn't happened in the past year? Uh, it's been a long year. So just a few days after John, who is one of the most staunch opponents of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, joined your podcast, the Jewish community for the first time since 1946 held a public protest against the Labour Party in Parliament Square, called it Dayenu, Enough is Enough. And that was completely unprecedented. That led to the leadership of our community meeting with Jeremy Corbyn. Some red lines were set. The Jewish community set six tests for the Labour Party to, to uh, not six tests, a small number of recommendations um, is probably a better way to say it, of things that the Labour Party could do to move forward what seemed at that point to be a complete impasse. Sort of fast forward a few months and anti-Semitism was in the news. It seemed like every day we had the news that Jeremy Corbyn has laid, apparently laid a wreath at the grave of the Black September terrorists. We had a member of the National Executive Committee going on a rant about how all of our rabbis were, quote, Trump fanatics. And going forward from that, that guy got elected, re-elected to the Labour Party's NEC. And more and more people were leaving the Labour Party. And at the same time, there was an almighty row about whether the Labour Party had adopted the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. And they decided they hadn't fully adopted it. And should they do it? How should they do it? Jeremy Corbyn and his team tried to caveat it and block it. It eventually passed. But there were just more and more incidents going forwards and leading up to what felt like an avalanche. Of just every single day, there'd be a new revelation about a different Labour MP, a different activist who'd been suspended, let back in, had said the most apparently anti-Semitic things 
but seemingly face no punishment. And all of this time, the Jewish labour movement was trying to move things forward, trying to engage, trying to train members and do the right thing. Now, that brings us basically to February of this year. And, and on February 18th, seven members of parliament announced that they would be resigning from the Labour Party due to the anti-Semitism that has taken root in the party. One of the MPs, uh, Luciana Berger, who is Jewish herself, called the Labour Party, quote, institutionally anti-Semitic. I'm trying to imagine the analog. If seven members of Congress announced at once that they were leaving one of our political parties, it would be an absolute political earthquake. Is that how this development was felt in Britain? Yes and no. It, it had been speculated for quite a while. The Labour Party is in an unrecognisable place from where it was you know, under the new Labour government from 1997 to 2010, a government that contributed amazing things to my country and really changed the landscape of of kids' lives for a generation, that Labour Party is almost unrecognisable in the people that now inhabit it and the policies they choose to pass. So it's been speculated for a long time, but you know, Luciana is nothing short of a hero to an entire generation of young Jewish people, particularly Jewish women. You know, Luciana has stood up against the most horrendous, abhorrent torrent of anti-Semitic abuse with grace and with dignity, and is really a leading light of, of I think, the global Jewish people. And for her to leave was saying the Labour Party is institutionally anti-Semitic. I think if that's not a political earthquake, I don't know what is. Was anti-Semitism the primary reason for all of them leaving? I, I think Ms. Berger was the only Jewish one of the seven. So, yes, there are obviously still a number of Jewish Labour MPs, all of whom have said similar, if not verbatim, things to what Luciana has said in terms of the party being institutionally anti-Semitic. They certainly all hold belief that there is anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Interestingly, Chuck Ramuna, who was one of the others who left, he was the first person to come out and say he thought the Labour Party was institutionally anti-Semitic and spoke very movingly when he left about how he joined an anti-racist party and he didn't know if he was that. It might not have been the factor for all of the MPs leaving, but I certainly believe it was a contributing factor for all of them. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned Chaka Umana, right? Like, these are not folks who were kind of career, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're the UK political expert here, but from where I sit in New York, these don't seem like folks who are kind of career backbenchers, who, you know, didn't have a future in labor. Many of them were seen as, as rising stars in the party, or, or at least were, before Corbyn became leader. They sacrificed quite a bit in leaving, didn't they? They've sacrificed a huge amount to stand up for their principle. And I think for any politician, you know, the mark of whether you are a success is whether you stand up for your convictions and your beliefs. And for me, one of the most moving examples was Ian Austin, who's the adoptive son of a Holocaust refugee who left the Labour Party four days after Luciana and the others did. And his, his interview on Newsnight was an incredibly emotive thing. And... You know, he believes that you shouldn't have to thank Labour MPs for standing up to racism. And I think he's a very incredible man. And Joan Ryan as well, who is the lay chair, of, who's the parliamentary chair even of Labour Friends of Israel, left because of anti-Semitism. And I think it's very hard for people to turn around and say they stand in solidarity with Luciana if they haven't left the Labour Party. Now, what does the future of the Labour Party look like? The leader, Jeremy Corbyn, just lost seven seats to defections. Actually, more than seven, I, I guess, because you mentioned Ian Austin. Mm. Um, I imagine, yeah. 
Right. So he lost nine seats to defections. I imagine that if there had been a general election and the number of seats that Labor held ended up falling by nine, there would be, you know, it wouldn't be considered a landslide, but there would be some significant grumblings for his resignation. But, you know, it seems like the party is perfectly content to leave him at the helm. Is is that correct? Yeah. Certainly there are many on the far left of the party who are very happy to see the MPs gone. And an example of that would be Young Labour, who tweeted, Young Labour being the youth group for all members of the Labour Party who are under 27, of which there are close to 100,000. And they tweeted, Joan Ryan gone, Palestine lives. You know, these people aren't sad to see the back of good, decent parliamentarians who... Yeah, you know, it's, it's always been said, right, that the Labour Party is a broad church. Maybe we should call it a broad synagogue. But <laughs> the Labour Party has always been a broad movement of those from the far left and those from the centre left. If those from the centre left do not feel like they have the space to be in the Labour Party anymore, if they don't feel like it's welcoming to them, you know, some of these MPs had faced motions of censure and their confidence from their local parties. One of them says she's been bullied out because of anti-Semitism this fight against anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is a fight for the soul of the Labour Party that was founded on the principles of liberation for all and anti-racism. It's a really sad day that we're even having this conversation. Hmm. What's what's that old line about philo-Semitism in the UK? A friend of the Jews is someone who is no more anti-Semitic than absolutely necessary. You know, is the anti-Semitism of the Labour Party the high-class boarding school anti-Semitism of kind of, you know, old world Britain? Or is it a different, newer breed? And does that even matter? It's every type of anti-Semitism. I I ran the Jewish labor movement training against anti-Semitism for two and a half years in the Labour Party. And I've been to pretty much every type of constituency, every student labor club, every conference that you can imagine. And the things that people say in those sessions, it's it's every type of anti-Semitism from someone in a constituency sharing a neo-Nazi graphic of a blood-sucking creature emblazoned with the Star of David over the Statue of Liberty right the way through to conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds in Israel. It's every type of anti-Semitism that we have ever seen. Holocaust denial, where the lines between criticizing the state of Israel and anti-Semitism have blurred, neo-Nazi anti-Semitism, everything has been seen in the Labour Party. And that, for me, is a real wake-up call, because it's not just what one would consider classic left-wing anti-Semitism. It's everything. Ella, I I have to ask, though it takes us off topic um, just before we close, all of this is not disconnected from Brexit uh, and from the Brexit debate. The apparent decomposition of labor, you know, provides a fascinating counterpoint to the apparent impotence of the conservative party. Even more than, you know, the question of where does labor go from here? Where does the UK go from here? I think if I had the answer to that question, I would be much more successful than I currently am. <laughs> but I think that anti-Semitism is on the rise in the UK. It has been for a number of years. 2018 was the most anti-Semitic year on record. The Labour Party is a significant part of that, but not the only area in which anti-Semitism is rising. And hate crime in general has been on the rise since Brexit. So the fact that we're seeing high levels of anti-Semitism in the years that Labour anti-Semitism is prevalent and Brexit is in the national discourse isn't sadly surprising. But I don't know where we go from here. Look, government's defeat yesterday, be it by such a large, nearly 150 government defeat, which is unheard of here, 
wasn't even the largest government defeat in history because that was the last time they put a deal on the table. No one really, you know, I'm not an expert on Brexit and I've never professed to be, but no one really knows where this is going. The most intelligent of the political commentators, the most dedicated of the campaigners will all tell you a different thing about what's going to happen with Brexit. And kind of all I really know is that our politics is really broken and that the Labour Party has a very, very, very long way to go before Jews feel comfortable and safe in its spaces. And bearing in mind, the Labour Party has been referred to the Equalities and Human Rights Commission for investigation. And the last time they investigated a political party was when they told the BNP, the British National Party, who were a far-right political party that thankfully no longer exists, they couldn't have a white-only policy. We're in dark days of politics, and I don't, I don't know where we're going from here. Well, Ella, know that we here in the American Jewish community stand with you. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your perspectives. Thank you for having me. It's time for our special Israeli elections segment. Each week through the upcoming general elections on April 9th, we'll be bringing you an exclusive update on the race to determine who will be the next occupant of the prime minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem. This is the battle for Balfour. If you're looking for a basic primer on the Israeli elections, please check out the January 3rd episode of AJC Passport featuring Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post. Joining us today on the battle for Balfour is Tal Shalev, political correspondent for leading Israeli news website, Walla News. Tal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, a number of actors, models, and TV hosts made political news this week in Israel. Tal, who is Rotem Sela and what did she do? Uh, Rotem Sela is one of uh, Israel's sweethearts, um, I would say. She has been a, an, a model and an actress. Uh, she's in her 30s, so she's been a model and an actress for about uh, probably more than 20 years or somewhere around 20 years. Um, and she is the host of one of the most popular TV shows in Israel. Um, it's like a, it's like America Got Talent. It's a talent show which basically um, chooses the uh, Israeli singer that will be competing in the Eurovision. Um, and she is the, a, extremely popular, extremely beautiful, if I might add, and extremely um, not used to being part of the political discourse. Um, she came out on Saturday evening in an Instagram story post, meaning she did not really understand, necessarily understand what she's getting into. But she came out against uh, Miri Regev, one of uh, um, the most, probably the strongest woman in the Likud, and one of Netanyahu's loyalists, who was giving a TV interview and chanting one of the Likud's, I would say, slogans, about the, uh, that is trying to um, portray uh, the blue and white party, the new party of uh, Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz and the and Yalon and Ashkenazi. Um, the Likud has been trying to portray them as leftists and has been trying to portray them as the only chance that they will be able to form a government. This party is uh, if they will be using support um, from the Arab parties. So this was the subject of the interview. Rotem Sela came out in a very, I would say, authentic post saying, why does everyone keep treating the Arab citizens as if they are unequal? Um, that was essentially the notion of the post. It was, again, very authentic and very natural. 
And she, I would say, fell straight into Netanyahu's claws because the morning after, uh, Netanyahu himself uh, answered her in a post and also, I would say, lectured her in the beginning of the uh, cabinet meeting um, and, of course, using it for his own political agenda and trying to use this incident in order to promote this very separative and very divisive campaign of the Likud, which is trying to very much create a us and them and try to create a very strong divide between Likud and right-wing supporters and Benny Gantz and blue-white and center-left supporters. But there was a superhero who came to Rotem Sela's aid, right? Exactly. So first of all, I should say that in Israel, we are not used to seeing artists, especially not, you know, celebrities and models expressing political opinions at all. So the fact that Sela spoke out and then got slammed by Netanyahu and a group of other Likud uh, loyalists and a, a group of other Likud politicians, this created some kind of attack on Rotem Sela. So the, so the retaliation, I would say, was that uh, two of her best friends, uh, the first one, very famous, Gal Gadot, who you mentioned, the Israeli Wonder Woman, but also another very famous Israeli model called Shlomit Malka, both of them basically also posted uh, um, posts on Facebook and Instagram in support of Rotem uh, Sela, and this at large was a scenario which we are very not used to in the Israeli political and public scene, in which uh, celebrities speak out about their political ideas. And it was, and, and it, it, we're still talking about it. By the way, it's four days after the incident, and Rotem Sela is still the subject of most of the political interviews that were given this week. So who looks good after this? You know, the prime minister plays to his base on the right, and maybe, you know, some folks on Israeli Twitter or Facebook talk about how brave these women are. But ultimately, does this move the needle politically? I don't think this impacts Netanyahu whatsoever. I mean, there was... At, on Sunday, when we had Rotem Sela, and then we had Gal Gadot, and then we had Shlomit Malka, there was a sense that this is a beginning of a wave. But I think that that wave kind of stopped and has been breaked. But I think that the main game probably is Netanyahu, who basically outplayed Rotem Sela and, has, and will probably be gaining um, support from his base, as you mentioned. I think... Um, off-topic, just to say that I think that it was an incident uh, that, A, um, it, it actually the whole Israeli public and political discourse gained something from it, hmm. because um, it was a surprise voice, um, one that we're not used to hearing in the political system, who came out and protested something very bad that is going on in Israeli political rhetoric. By the way, it's not only Netanyahu, it's, you know, cross-spectrum, and even uh, you know, the uh, the alternative, the blue-white party, the, the center-left party, they didn't really come out in defense of Rotem Sela because this whole nationalistic theme and nationalistic discourse has basically taken over a wide section of the political system. And I think that the fact that um, three women, outsider women, came out and said, listen, this is unhuman, it's not about politics, it's about being... Um, human and being neighborly and treating all people as equal and with respect. I think that at largest was a refreshing trend in what we've been seeing in the election so far. And I also think that it was nice on a personal note that this was three women, and young and strong women who were not afraid to say 
what they were saying and then were not afraid to express their opinion. Um, I think that, you know, Gal Gadot has been one of Israel's best uh, Hasbara and public diplomacy tokens in the past two years since she became Wonder Woman. And me personally, I felt very proud to see these three women speak up, even if I do not agree necessarily with what they had to say. Indeed. And when it comes to democracies, when it comes to Israel, really the whole idea is that there is no such thing as an Israel Sugbet, as a um, as a second class citizen, right? And so speaking out and saying there's no problem with Arabs in politics, there's no problem with Arabs in government is something that feels very kind of lowercase d democratic in a positive way. I, I, I want to stay on that for a moment because I'm an Odeh, the Israeli Arab from Haifa who heads the kind of... <laughs> communist-inflected, mostly Arab Hadash party, and who in in this past Knesset was the leader of the joint Arab list, he made headlines this week with a New York Times op-ed explaining how Arab members of Knesset could play a role in electing Benny Gantz to be Israel's next prime minister. Now, he didn't specifically say that they could sit in the next government, but that they could be helpful. How newsworthy is that? Um, well, I'm another was basically just, you know, resonating or reflecting what is the political situation um, and has been the political situation, I should say, in the past 30 years, which is that no center left, generally within the Jewish population, there's a majority of right wing voters and a majority of right wing parties. So any center-left party who would want to be able to form a coalition and get the mandate from the president, essentially and necessarily, just because the numbers don't add up, will have to have support from the Arab parties. That is what brought up Yitzhak Rabin in 1992, and that is what helped Ehud Barak get elected in 1999. So if you just look at the numbers, that's the way it plays out politically. Um, The problem is that under Netanyahu and the Likud, This whole arrangement has basically been totally delegitimized in the past few weeks, and this has been a major part of Netanyahu's campaign, trying to present the choice between Bibi and Tibi, referring to Ahmed Tibi, who is the leader of the Ta'al, another Arab party, Ta'al, who is Ayman Oda's partner. This whole Bibi or Tibi um, slogan basically uh, presents Gantz as someone who can only do it with the support of the Arab parties, which is true, but presents him as someone, you know, as a, as a leftist and uh, un-Jewish politician or uh, doesn't respect the Jewish nature of the state. Netanyahu's slogan and his whole campaign is very, very divisive. But the fact is that even Netanyahu himself, in 2009, when he formed his government, he could do it because the Arab parties did not recommend CP Livni. And if we look at history, generally, basically, the Arab parties usually prefer not to recommend anyone. So when they do not recommend anyone, essentially they become part of the bloc that is blocking Netanyahu, but that does not necessarily mean that they will be recommending Benny Gantz. I'm not sure that at the end of the uh, process they would feel comfortable recommending Gantz. I should say that the Blue-White Party, Benny Gantz, Moshe Alon, and Gabi Ashkenazi, the three IDF chief of staff who are leading this party, are not necessarily the most, you know, they're heroes for the Jewish population in Israel, but they're not necessarily heroes for the Arab population in mm. Israel. So Ayman Oda and Ahmad Tibi 
politically, it's not necessarily going to be the right choice for them to out and openly say, we recommend uh, blue and white to form the next government. But even if they do not say anything, in de facto, they are part of their bloc. Well, we'll be watching these and other issues very closely in the weeks to come. Tal, thank you for joining us and sharing your insights. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Zion. Good for the Jews? Zion means many things. In the Bible, it refers to Jerusalem or to the whole land of Israel. In contemporary America, it refers to the National Park in Utah or perhaps to Zion Williamson, the star freshman on the Duke Blue Devils college basketball team. But at least this week, at least in the UK, Zion refers to Zion Benjamin Manny Goldsmith, the son who was just born, to Luciana Berger, the brave Jewish member of parliament who stood up to years of anti-Semitic attacks from within her own party. And when she was finally done putting up with it, didn't leave quietly, but took several stars with her and created a new parliamentary group. And when she had a son, just weeks later, she gave him a proudly Jewish name. That fortitude and moral courage, not to mention one more member of the tribe, all of that is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.